0: community networks, uh, they are much less likely to escape, so to speak, um, these collective grievances, and that their individual preferences are much more closely associated with um, this with uh, collective harm from which the community as a whole suffered. Right? So the survivors, then, we argue, are still part, um, they were part of a, a, a such tightly knit community networks, and they are still part of these networks long after the war ended. And so being part of such a tightly knit network then um, makes it more likely for individual preferences to follow this kind of a collective political response. However, uh, and now going back to the comparison with uh, the the Ukraine example, we actually argue that this effect of these collective grievances depends on um, both the political electoral activation of war identities and the organizational strength of these community uh, uh, networks. As I said before, in a case like or in a context like the Ukraine, where this uh, Ukraine Russian-speaking divide is constantly politically activated, right by the the current political events, revolutions, coups, protests, um, 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 Russian intervention, and so on, where these war identities um, from 40, 50 years back are constantly reactivated, it's much more likely to observe uh, a long-lasting effect of the violence. Um, But this might not be the case um, where war identities kind of lose in political, uh, in current political, contemporary political importance, right? So we believe that the, the effect of these grievances should be uh, highest uh, whenever the the old war identities are activated politically, uh, and they lose in importance when political competition turns to other um, topics, so to speak, or um, activates alternative social divisions and identities. The Guatemalan Civil War uh, was one of the, at that time, was the longest lasting war in the Western Hemisphere. Um, lasting from 1962 to 1996, a number of different uh, previous, uh, or at the beginning, independent revolutionary organizations fought against the Guatemalan state. They kind of unified to the, uh, 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 in 1982, forming the uh, URNA-G, um, which became the the main or the yeah the umbrella revolutionary organization, and the Guatemalan state reacted with a brutal counterinsurgency campaign that included acts of genocide. I have mentioned that before against indigenous Maya uh, people. About 200,000 people were killed, um, depending on the on the source. Or there were two truth commission reports and. Uh, between 85 and 95% of the violence was attributed to the Guatemalan state. And we can see that in our own data. About 50,000 disappeared. 440 communities, again, these were indigenous communities mostly, were completely wiped out. Um, That's what kind of uh, uh, has to do, or that's why the truth commissions afterwards spoke of acts of genocide. To illustrate that with our own data, uh, we are focusing on indiscriminate violence in particular. Uh, this might be problematic, we can talk about it afterwards. But right now, we, we just have, we just collected these data from the Comisión de la Esclare... Esclarificación Histórica. No, Esclare... Histórico. So we went through the lists of Events of violence that were reported by uh, survivors. Um, And we counted events and coded uh, variables like who perpetrated, uh, who was the perpetrator, where did it take place, when did it uh, take place. And so we have this data uh, set on, right now, on massacres and arbitrary executions committed during the, the whole period of the Guatemalan. Civil War, and obviously our own data reflect what everybody knows: the the the, the bulk of the violence was committed by uh, by the army. Uh, the PAK uh, are the the, the the state-sponsored militias, local militias that operated in in in, in rural villages, uh, collaborated with the state. Um, they were also, um, of course guilty of many, many atrocities, but they committed much less than actually uh, the army. However, there's probably reason to believe that the Paks, which were locally based, were able to use selective violence to a greater extent than the army, which came from far, came into the villages with with little information about the local circumstances and relied on indiscriminate violence to kill people. Right? Uh, The guerrilla were, again, much... uh, uh, Responsible for much less violence. Um, yeah. There's not much of a temporal difference when it comes to um, uh, the uh, the, um, <coughs> the use of either massacres or arbitrary executions. Um, we can also see that uh, in both cases, the violence was extremely uh, regionally concentrated. In the region, the highland regions were uh, mostly indigenous people are living. Um, 1984, the military embarks of a a very controlled uh, campaign of democratization. First elections take place. Um, There's a constitution that is um, uh, implemented, uh, but completely under the control of the military. Finally, in 1996, the peace agreements are signed. Now, what is important is the revolutionary movement, by the time the peace accords were signed, the revolutionary movement was virtually militarily defeated, and that's very important because it means that uh, there's reason to believe that the, uh, the, the the revolutionary left, by the time it went to into the elections, did not have much of an electoral appeal be- because you know militarily it was so weak. Now, uh, we would assume that also politically um, did not, uh, was not able to present itself as a viable political force for the future, which means we can actually speak of Guatemala as a most likely case of an effective counterinsurgency. Right? Um, even though there was an important challenge, it was, um, it was uh, virtually defeated. That's very different from El Salvador, where the, uh, the revolutionary left was actually entering the peace negotiations almost as equals. And no surprise, when they went into the elections, they presented, they were able to present themselves as a much more viable political force and gain much more electoral strength than the Guatemalan left. Um, so in that sense, and in contrast to the example of the Ukraine before, we would actually think that in Guatemala, the counterproductive political effects that I mentioned before should be relatively unlikely. So it's almost the least likely case to find long-lasting political effects of violence. Um, And if the, uh, the Guatemalan experts that I referred to before are correct, then we would actually expect the affected indigenous communities to be least likely to support the revolutionary left after war because, you remember, there is this idea that um, uh, because of the revolutionary pessimism, they they are blaming the the left for the violence they have suffered. So, if that is correct, the affected communities would actually be the least likely to vote for the left. Just in terms of the elections, that's important for our theoretical argument. I believe the first post-conflict election, obviously, we believe that these were the elections where the war identities were most prevalent still. 2003 is also an important election, where we should observe this effect, because the aforementioned General Efraín Ríos Mons ran ran as presidential candidate. In contrast, in 2007, Álvaro Colom. Who was, a, who was an ex guerrillero, was the front-runner and the eventual winner of the election at the head of a center-left party. So he moved away from the revolutionary left, uh, created his own party, which was at the center-left, backed by some economic elites, whereas the revolutionary left split into two different parties. Now, 2011, there is another ex-general running as a presidential candidate, front-runner and eventual winner, Otto Perez-Mini and Molina, and on the other hand, the revolutionary left achieved to unify itself again and ran as the URNG uh, in the Frente Amplio. So, our analysis is um, a cross-sectional analysis of the 330 Guatemalan municipalities. So, what we, war- well, we are trying to find out here is whether or not the, uh, the degree of um, state violence during civil war affects the degree or the, the level of post-conflict electoral support for the left. Um, now, of course, from uh, methodological, a methodological point of view, there's this big problem of endogeneity, the violence was not applied randomly, so it's very possible that the state attacked those communities that were already in favor of the left, which means perhaps we are just observing pre-war electoral preferences um, that remain stable. Right Now we deal with that in, uh, in, in, a, in a number of ways. We try to Theorize and empirically capture the factors that determine the non-random geographic distribution of state violence. We uh, use department-level fixed effects, so we are not comparing municipalities in completely different um, uh, departments. Right? Of course, whatever happened here must have been very different from what happened here. So we just exploit variation in, like, uh, within uh, specific departments, within individual departments. And then finally uh, we have we employ uh, another uh, method of uh, reducing um, unobserved heterogeneity by comparing just neighboring municipalities. Um, Obviously the idea is that neighboring municipalities are always extremely similar in their geographic and social conditions so if we um, if we find an effect within such pairs of neighboring municipalities, we can be more uh, conf- confident that that it actually we are actually observing a causal effect of the violence. So in this um, second um, <laughs> setup, our our main analysis, uh, sorry, our main unit of analysis as I said before is the individual municipality. And in the second test, the the, analysis, uh, the the unit of analysis is actually a pair, a unique pair of two neighboring municipalities that are located within the same department. Uh, there are 664 pairs because, of course, each muni- municipality can be part of of various pairs, right? Um, what we then we, what we do here is that We look or we examine where there is a systematic relationship between the difference in the degree of violence that the two municipalities um, uh, uh, experienced and the variation in terms of support for the left after the conflict. Again. We believe that if we find a systematic relationship between state violence and post-conflict electoral support within such similar municipalities, um, then that should be more evidence for a causal effect of of state violence. Our dependent variable is simply the post-conflict electoral support. Uh, electoral support for the left measured by the combined vote share of the revolutionary parties. As I said before, um, actually in 1999 there were two revolutionary leftist parties, just one in 2003, two again in 2007, the uh, Frente Amplio in 2011. So we usually, as we uh, in all these elections we take either uh, the vote share of the, the one revolutionary leftist party or the combined vote share of, of the two uh, in each municipality. <coughs> State violence during civil war, we have um, made one main uh, measure of that. We count the number of events. So how many massacres and how many arbitrary executions happened in in a given municipality between 1979 and 1984, which was the the main period of violence. Um, um, Obviously, it varies a lot, and uh, most municipalities actually did not experience any any violence. So we use a logarithmic version of of the variable. We did some robustness tests. For example, um, the number of victims, So we also counted the number of victims in each event and used that as an alternative indicator of state violence. Um, We used an alternative time period, just focusing on 1981 to 1983. And we also looked at the effect of the violence that was committed during the whole of the war. Now, as I said before, there are some problems when it comes to the effect of that's the effect that we are interested in, right? State violence on post conflict electoral support for the left. But obviously, state violence is not randomly distributed. What was uh, a consequence of the presence? Where were the guerrillas? That's where the state applied the violence, and where was the insurgent potential? Because obviously, state elites would think about who are who were the most likely insurgents, and and that's where they uh, probably applied most of the violence. And both of these factors also had an effect on an independent effect on on, on our dependent variable, which means um, in order to get closer to a causal effect of state violence, uh, or in order to get closer to isolating potentially causal effect of state violence, we need to control for these two factors. And that's what we do. Um, We measure the the insertion potential with uh, pre-war data. Percentage of of the indigenous population in 1973, the the level of literacy, the idea is obviously the less uh, literate people means more social marginalization, which means more uh, grievances, more insurgent potential, and also the degree of political mobilization before the war. Um, The guerrilla presence, we measure with um, uh, the degree of guerrilla violence before 1979, also stemming from the the, uh, Commission data. Um, And then we use three variables that kind of capture the conditions for guerrilla incubation. Where was it most likely that the guerrilla could kind of get in and build up strength? And based on the literature, we think that these are mountainous areas, areas that are covered by forests, and areas that are remote from the, uh, from, from the capital. So civil war researchers identified these factors as the most propitious for revolu- revolutionary incubation. Um, now here's the bivariate relationship. Um, in fact, what we find is that um, you know if we this is not controlling for any of these. Uh, um, potentially confounding factors if we just look at the data what we see is that uh, municipalities with higher number of events of state violence um, were or gave more support to the revolutionary left in the first post-conflict elections these results are robust when we control for all the um, the variables that I mentioned before. And as you can see here, the effect is actually extremely, extremely large in this first uh, post-conflict election. Um, So the second largest impact um, comes from the indigenous population variable. So in fact, the indigenous population was actually more likely, or or municipalities, with high high, uh, percentages of indigenous population, were actually more likely to vote for the left uh, still in nineteen ninety nine. So there is nothing like a punishment uh, of, the, of the left. Um, but the effect of state balance is much, is, is much larger. Um, we yes. also look at how this effect plays out in the different departments and we calculate it Um, department-specific first differences for the 12 most affected departments. And we can see that in almost all of them, the effect of state violence on the degree of uh, post-conflict electoral support for the left is positive, and in the the majority statistically uh, significant. What is interesting here, what is important, is that precisely in the departments where state violence... um, was uh, uh, was most severe the effect the let's say the, the, the politically or the counterproductive political effect was actually largest too so in, in Tiche, the most effective department within Guatemala if um, if we, if we um, increase the degree of state violence by one standard deviation um, uh, the municipality gave ten percent more votes to the left in one thousand nine hundred and ninety nine that 's quite that 's quite an important effect substantively finally or no the second uh, last slide for the results um, we find the exactly same result when we look at the pairs of Uh, geographically contiguous municipalities, the neighboring municipalities. So each observation here is um, a pair of two neighboring municipalities within the same department. The x-axis shows the difference between these two municipalities in terms of state violence and the y-axis shows the difference between these two neighboring municipalities in terms of electoral support for the left, which means that um, that one municipality that experienced more state violence was also more, or also gave more support to the left after the war. Now, what is interesting is that this effect does not remain stable over time. So, as expected, um, it's, the effect is strongest in the immediate post-conflict elections. It's still very significant, both substantively and uh, statistically, in 2003, when uh, Efrain Rios Montt runs the presidential candidate. It goes away, completely goes away in 2007, when the ex-guerriero Álvaro Colom um, uh, uh, moves away from the revolutionary left Founds his own, forms his own party, center-left party, and the revolutionary left is divided between two different parties. Now, it becomes significant again in 2011, when the ex-general Otto Perez Molina uh, is the most likely candidate to win, and the revolutionary left, again, uh, combines into one Frente Amplio. Right? So there's another monotonous decrease, but it, it, the effect appears again in 2011. So, then to sum up, what we find is that municipalities that were most affected by state violence during the war voted more strongly in favor of the left after the war, Um, which means that the electoral potential of the Guatemalan left in principle remains, and perhaps still remains, intact. Um, And that's quite interesting because, as I said before, um, Guatemala, where the uh, where the URNG was militarily defeated, basically was kind of a a, a, a likely case, or in a sense, at least likely case to find this uh, counterproductive political effect of violence, right? Um, so, in contrast to most existing studies, we look at the impact of war violence on on uh, collective outcomes, not the individual level. And we do find that these communities that were affected, they politically turn against the perpetrators of the violence by supporting the former revolutionaries. Um, The question, of course, is still, even though we use all these robustness tests, the question is, is it simply that electoral preferences remain stable? So the counterinsurgency was ineffective, or was it actually counterproductive and it actually increased electoral support for the left? That's still, um, because we do, not have, uh, we do not have pre-war electoral data, we cannot exactly um, uh, determine that. In any case, the decline of the Guatemalan left is unlikely to be a consequence of the state violence. There was no... Electoral punishment by the affected indigenous communities—that's um, pretty clear. And the final uh, question for me now is um, whether uh, or where to go from here. Right? As I said before, our theory is relatively thin; it's mostly an empirical paper where we look at this relationship. And I wonder, what would be the more interesting path to go from here? whether we should actually look at the the difference between the violence committed by the army, which was more indiscriminate, or the uh, more selective violence by the PAC, which would mean that we would have to collect additional data on other forms of violence, not just massacres and executions. More time to be invested. Or whether we should try to find out about this political electoral activation. So the um, what we find here is that because in 2011 the revolutionary left was just better in mobilizing or was it actually Otto Pérez Molina, the ex-general that kind of activated the war identities? Um, So on the one hand, the question is, does the effect depend on whether political competition activates the war identities or whether the revolutionary left itself is capable of, of mobilizing. So uh, that would be uh, an interesting path to go um, as well. And I'm, I'm curious to to hear your uh, thoughts of which direction this project could go. So thank you very much. <laughs>